0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Alan Morlock. And uh, Alan lives in the Garden State of New Jersey. Um, and I was introduced to him, I think maybe your wife Gina got in touch with me at one point and said, how would you like to interview my husband? Um, Alan has an association with the Waking Down group, of whom I have interviewed quite a few people. but. Um, when you listen to this interview as i as I've been listening to several of his other interviews um, his the scope of his experience is is much broader than that and um, there's a lot of diversity among the people who are associated with that group so it's not like you're hearing the same story over and over again when you talk to them um, in any case thank you uh, for this opportunity Alan um, and we have as much time as you want today so we'll, we'll we'll go into your whole story and I know from having listened to you tell it that it's a fascinating one.
1: Uh, thank, thank you, Rick. Um, better mention my friend um, Robert Ciccolini.
0: Oh, that's right. It was Robert.
1: He, yeah. He, uh, he contacted you originally.
0: That's right. I, I, I forgot. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you, Robert. <laughs> so uh, where would you like to begin? Um, you and I were just talking a minute ago about how it is kind of fascinating to hear people's stories, some people sort of poo-poo the idea of stories, oh it's just a story, but stories can be fascinating, and there's a lot of wisdom that can be gleaned from listening to them, and and a lot of sort of affinity that can be found in hearing what a person has gone through on their particular spiritual path, you know, where how it differs from and and compares with our own.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I love the stories <coughs> Sometimes I learn more from people's story than I do from their, uh, um, their was, teaching. Their teaching, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So I think I think you know. Let me just say one thing about that. I think there's generally three. Uh, I'll paint three broad categories of people who are interested in spirituality. Uh, not that that's the limit, but something that I've noticed. Uh, one is the yogi type. Um, the yogi type will come to see everything as energy. Everything is pure shakti. The other is more of the pure khani, who comes to see everything as Brahman, everything as consciousness. And the third category, which is where i lean into more, is uh, the bhakta who sees everything the play of God, mm. Everything's the lila of the divine. And so in the stories, the, the the mystery hints at its own self through the stories of the uh, people who live spiritual life. Really everybody, but um, we we're, we're given the role of being spiritual types. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> Sometimes I'd I think, oh, would have been cool to be an NBA player, but, you know, it's the role that came. This is what happened. Yeah. You're given the role of spiritual types. maybe a spiritual NBA player. <laughs> 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 yeah, the problem with the spiritual uh, thing is uh, the more you become um, what would seem to be championship material, the more you become uh, aware that you're just completely ordinary. Mm -hmm. um, Everybody is uh, is very, very special and um, at the same time very, very ordinary.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's true. You you read uh, these accounts of people who have near-death experiences, you know, and they consider themselves to be just sort of totally ordinary people, and then they kind of have this sudden glimpse into how incredibly magical and vast and profound their life is you know and how much they are loved and and you know just what an amazing thing life is you know and then they come back into their ordinary life and often
1: you know changed
0: permanently as a result of that experience yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. i i i quite fond of those stories actually
0: mm-hmm.
1: and my spiritual experience um as it's matured it, Tends to align. My interpretation tends to align more with some of those than it does with some of the um, mm, dharma's of the world. Hmm. I, and I, you know, my I've listened to a lot of them, uh, not extensively in terms of investigating any particular one. But the the one lady who really stood out in my mind is uh, her name is Nancy Dannison. She's huh. this lawyer out in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and uh, it was an amazing experience, and really reflects my own experience very well. Mm. But,
0: I'm, know, I'm going to be interviewing a woman in a few weeks who uh, was m- uh, almost murdered, I mean attacked and stabbed repeatedly with a knife, and she had an experience like that, and just completely sort of went into this... Heavenly realm, and felt nothing but love for her attacker, and, and it completely transformed her life. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a bit of a tangent. Uh, so, you know, I, as I recall in listening to your interview, one of your interviews, um, at a very early age, you um, had a, a sort of a realization that you know you were not just this little kid in tennessee that there was something more to your life and you didn't want to lose or forget you know that more profound or essential aspect
1: of who you were yeah what what that was i was um there's no way to tell exactly the age um but probably three to four
2: Mm -hmm.
1: the reason i came up with that age is um i grew up in a we had a little cabin on the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Four children, two adults, dogs, cows, pigs, chickens, moonshine still. <laughs> moonshine. <laughs> yeah, there were there we uh, you could walk back in the mountains and occasionally find a, a still. Um, yeah. We had no running water. We had no toilet. You know, you want wow. you wanted to go to the bathroom. The bathroom was outside the house. <laughs> <There> was, <laughs> and we didn't wear shoes except in the wintertime when it was really cold. Um, we bought very little food because we had very little money. Anyhow, I was around the age of three or four and um, because my mother worked constantly, just keeping the house, keeping us alive. and um, I got out by myself a little child and, and walked sort of up the hill behind the house towards the mountain. I was a couple hundred yards, three hundred yards away from the house, and I looked down on it, (coughs) and I suddenly realized that this um, experience was causing me to lose um, the memory of my nature.
0: This experience of being a
1: person, of life. Yeah, there was something about being a human, or becoming human, that was erasing the memory of um, who I am basically, mm-hmm. my essential nature. And that memory flashed so profoundly into my uh, the beginnings of a mind, the formation, that, that the mind was beginning to, to form. and But the memory of my essential nature flashed so forward it was a, it was a horrifying moment, really. It was just horrifying. Um, and um, I concluded that these creatures, uh, humans, had kidnapped me. <laughs> uh, and I, but it, it was so baffling. How could they have kidnapped me? How could this have happened? How did they capture me? But that was the only thing. Uh, I, I don't think that particular concept formed at the time. But as the capacity to formulate concept came into the formative mind, that's the concept that most captured what I went through. Mm. Uh, And and, uh, I I knew that I was a completely free, transcendent being, that there was no such thing as language and the struggle to communicate through language. There was no no restriction to movement. in this domain, this reality, this world I, I somehow gotten trapped into, is um, very dark and heavy and dense. Um, there's there's no <laughs> in the spiritual nature that I remember, There's no there's nothing that opposes light. So there's no there's no uh, you just don't have a contrast there that's you. Mm-hmm. So in the midst of that intense. Um, shock, I took two vows. First of all, I vowed that no matter what these people did, no matter what this world imposed on me, I would never forget my nature. It was an intense, intense stand, vow that I took. And um, the second, I took a second vow, which I pretty much forgot until nineteen ninety the summer nineteen ninety the second vow was that I would find my way back home
0: how'd you do on the first vow
1: well that was, yeah that's so I never forgot that i it never it, it was never erased by the process of um onset of mind and the, you uh,
0: never forgot your vow or if you never forgot your nature
1: both of those really. really? So you throughout
0: you didn't, you know, through all the teenage craziness and all you managed to sort of retain your some yeah. sort of self realization?
1: Right, right. Oh. I was always aware of that. And it, it um it didn't make my life easier or better. Actually, it made it worse in some <laughs> ways. Because I couldn't I couldn't find any reflection or justification of that in the world around me. You felt if like I you didn't even, fit in. Wow, that would be putting it mildly. Yeah, yeah. I I never did. I didn't form the natural bonds and connections that other people around me were forming.
0: Uh huh. Stranger in a strange land.
1: (laughs) Yeah, some of that. Some of that was there.
0: Yeah. Huh. So uh, okay, so uh, you're you're in your early sixties. So you know, and you said it wasn't until 1990 that you sort of rekindled your vow number two. I guess you said it was. so uh, you know, take us through your life. I mean, well, covering quite yeah. a few decades there of, of uh,
1: adventures. Yeah, there's there a couple of things that happened along the way. One thing that um, I mean, little things would happen that I I couldn't explain or understand. Uh, one day when I was a teenager, I, I just looked at my arm, I and mean, when I looked at my arm, uh, held in my hand, I was just looked at my arm, and, and instead of seeing a human arm, I saw A stretch of stars and galaxies. Wow, huh? Solar systems. Um, Interesting. And it never—I didn't know what to make of it. Just Um, out of
0: the blue, it just. Yeah, yeah. You weren't on on LSD or anything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I never heard of. When I was, uh, we were. My childhood was very innocent in some ways. We weren't exposed to anything but alcohol. Alcohol never had any appeal to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was always that drive for. Higher, higher thought, a higher connection. Yeah. And I went through uh, pretty much the same thing everybody does. The, uh, the personality did um, come, it did develop, the whole mind and uh, individuality took hold and took its toll, and all the pains and pressures that everybody goes through, the, the confusion and all that. Um, then, when I was uh, nineteen, at the age of nineteen, I think I uh, had a conflict with my, with a girl that I a high school girlfriend. I, I was really torn because I had this love for this woman, uh, young woman, and at the same time, something was compelling me to a higher thought, uh, um, this transcendent search or spiritual seeking. So, out of that conflict of um, a a need for knowledge or transcendence spiritual seeking and uh, having love for this young female. Because I knew she she wouldn't, uh, her interest was uh, what I call a picket picket fence reality. Uh, she had it all planned out. And, and in the midst of this, she decided to marry a mother, another man, which was uh, emotionally devastating to me. I was torn, sort of torn between these two worlds, so to speak. And uh, I, I thought very intensely about this, and at that time, uh, I was having long hair and, and using pot and but I used pot and hallucinogens mm-hmm. actually in a very single minded way. I wanted knowledge. Mm-hmm. I wanted to penetrate this veil of, of um, the individuality in the mind. It was very clear to me that's why I was doing it. And my mother, I, she became kind of upset about the whole thing, naturally, and she was the only... Most of my family pretty much disowned me except for her. And one day she questioned me. She said, what is it that you want? And uh, nobody had really asked me that, so I had to clarify it. And I thought to myself, I want knowledge. That's what I came to, is I, I just want knowledge. And I had to go through a kind of investigation about... You know, I'd been exposed to the writings of Castaneda and there wasn't much else to read. I mean, you could go in a bookstore in those days, and two books on spirituality, maybe. So I had to go through a process of sorting out what was really important, and that's what I, c- I came down to, that I had to have knowledge at all costs. I, I, I threw everything into this risk, so to speak, of, of, of having knowledge. Mm-hmm and uh, spend the next year or two kind of wearing myself out with um, hallucinogenic substances and uh, marijuana and um, be- went into an intense depression, horrible, horrible, horrible depression and I, I, I never used any drug that was I perceived as addicting like mm-hmm. heroin or amphetamines and then one day <coughs> I picked up a book on meditation and I tried to practice with almost no success. Then I saw a picture of Mahesh Yogi in the TM thing. That would have been 72 um, when I was in my early 20s. Um, had a wife and a child at that time and um, living this insane lifestyle and uh, went to the introductory lecture, and I think the guy's name was John Lyons. I've never heard of him since. Oh, so yeah, I know John Lyons. Oh, great, great. I wonder where he is these days. Um, last
0: uh, last I knew, he was uh, out on the West Coast running, uh, well, this is like 20 years ago I saw him out there. He, <laughs> he had a, a burrito place called Juanito's Burritos, <laughs> Wow. Um, uh, and uh, very delicious burritos. <laughs>
1: oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So anyhow, it, it, I went to the introductory lecture and he said, okay, to start this meditation, you have to give up drugs. I immediately dropped all drugs. Starting uh, the TM practice began, I think it was in 72, John Lyons. Actually, when uh, you know John did the puja for initiation, turned to give me the mantra and tried to get me to repeat the mantra. I, I couldn't even repeat the mantra. I couldn't, I, I suppose it was some kind of samadhi. I had an, an awareness of myself, but it was like... I couldn't connect with my body. I didn't know. I couldn't speak. I thought something was wrong. I thought I was uh, failing the program. (laughs) So, so
0: just the puja zapped you so much that.
1: (laughs) So anyhow, anyhow, let's see if we can fast forward through some of this. Uh, The TM era went on for about 12 years. I had a very during much of that. I had a very very pure lifestyle. Very dedicated to practice. Meditation was great. I had a number of um, very transcendent experiences. Even the in that winter of 72-73, I was at teacher training for a five-month program, and, the, and the, in the break, we had a small group who were doing both programs, and we were in um, the Puntumbria, maybe. Uh, for the duration of Maheshogi went into 7 days of silence and told us to do the same. Mm-hmm. And at that point my mind merged into om hmm. and I saw I saw clearly through direct experience that om is sourcing everything continuously. Creation and creation and dissolution happen every moment rather than only over a whatever so many yugas it su- it's said to happen. It also happens you could say with every breath, although ohm and breath aren't exactly the same, but I saw that directly, which um, was a, just the very beginning of, of what I was seeking in terms of knowledge. Went on through uh, development of transcendent, a transcendent quality of awareness, and then it kind of started to migrate away from the TM program in uh, in the mid eighties and uh, consequently it had uh, there was a psychic opening then and um, I knew way too much um, i I'd look at someone and i their past I would know their past lives I would know the karmas that were involved with the problems they were dealing with hmm. um, but I, I you know I kind of looked at it and I said well it's okay it's good stuff but it's not my destiny and uh, yeah. i didn't i didn't Force it away. I just didn't. I didn't give it a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Could have made a profession of it if you wanted. I, yeah, to. I could have kind of become a twenty-five dollar psychic. Anyhow, <laughs> um, it, it, it didn't fulfill my quest, and uh, did a stint of rebirthing at that time to sort of sort out. Um, the transcendent was clear to me even then, um, but then there's this personal life that was going on. That okay, how do we get this thing to work out here? <laughs> how do we get this human part to work out for? in relationship and family and all that, and uh, rebirthing helped somewhat. Still my quest was nowhere near satisfaction. Then around 19...
0: Let, let me interject a question
1: eight eight here before you continue. Um, you, know, you had said
0: earlier that when you, had, when you were three or four you had, had made this vow not to forget yep. your true nature, right. and, you, and you said that you never really forgot it, mm-hmm. and, um, and yet you, know, you went through a whole phase of um, you know, taking drugs for a few years. Um, w- did you take those drugs? I mean, even during the drug taking, did you not forget your true nature? And why were you taking the drugs? Well, the, w- the what were you hoping the, to gain from them that you hadn't already uh, gained in terms of knowing your true nature?
1: The memory of the nature was there. Ah, just a just a f- the, sort of a taste mem- of it or a flavor. Mem- yeah. yeah, not memory like, not memory like remembering my mother's maiden name because I could forget that. This right. wasn't that kind of memory. It was a memory that cannot be forgotten, no matter what happens. But the comes.
0: full living of it wasn't there, and that's what you were yeah, looking the for. Yeah,
1: ma- uh. the mature expression of it. Uh, oh, okay. There was okay. there was still...
0: The imprint uh, of it was th- there.
1: There was still a hard, demanding quality of, of personality, of individuality. It was hard and demanding. There was a mental construct that... Um, Became a prison, so to speak. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was an attempt to penetrate that. An attempt to bring that. To bring the the knowledge of a, a, a living knowledge or a continual knowledge of that transcendent nature into play.
0: Right. And so your TM years uh, ramped that up some, but still didn't fulfill it. Right.
1: Right. Okay. Certainly brought clarity around the transcendent quality. Mm-hmm. But didn't do much for the personal life. It didn't. It didn't bring the kind of satisfaction either to the personal life or to the quest. Right. Then, in about 1988 or so, Sai Baba came to me and uh, You could say dream or meditation or trance, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's another dim- dimension of being uh, that this happens. And I found myself in a uh, something like a cave in the Himalayan mountains. And there was me and uh, Sai Baba and a yogi. The famous
0: Sai Baba with the yeah. big hair that right. died recently. Right, okay.
1: right. Mm-hmm. And then this, uh, th- there was like a three-way nonverbal communication. And when I came out of that, I, what I understood was, I would no longer be um, have a yogi as my guru, but Sai Baba himself would be my guru. Hmm. So from that time on, my relationship with Sai Baba intensified. And by 1990, you never
0: met him in person. This is all. Know, so I'll, I'll,
1: I'll, yeah, and no, I'll get to that. So in, 19, subtle, yeah. uh, in 1990, my desire or need for clarification had sort of reached a point of um, another level of intensity, I guess you could say. And uh, at that point, 1990, I could no longer. I I just simply could no longer live. It wasn't a state of depression. It was a state of just absolutely no interest. Like the 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 desire for knowledge, had ramped up even more. Mm -hmm. And finally, in the summer of 1990, I I made a trip to India to meet Sai Baba in person. And uh, I was I went alone, uh, in (laughs) India. Going to India that time to me was like I should have gone to if I'd gone to another planet. It would have been easier to uh, assimilate, I think, because I, I had no idea how how completely different everything is in India. So mm-hmm. I land in Bombay yeah. and had to get my way over to Parti, where uh, Baba Zashram is. And I go and I sit down in um, in the in the space for Darshan. I look over to my right and who's sitting there? Andy Reimer sitting there. Oh yeah, actually somebody I knew. I'd kno- I'd known Andy pretty well. Anyhow, yeah. So I, knew him,
0: I knew him pretty well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, uh, there was a moment when Sai Baba walked into the space for Darshan, and I re- immediately remembered the second vow that I would find my way home. Hmm. And in that moment, I knew, I knew, I absolutely completely knew that that was home for me. And my relationship with what? That
0: what was home for you?
1: That presence, uh-huh. that, pre- that presence <laughs> that is presented through the form of Sai Baba. Uh-huh.
0: Th- and was are you saying that that uh, the presence as presented through Sai Baba was home, or the presence was home, and Sai Baba happened to be the presenter at that point?
1: I don't. Know, it sounds the same to me. Does
0: it? I mean, because there are a lot of saints that could present that sort yeah. of presence. Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: there are. That's true. That's mm-hmm. true. But for me, Baba presented. He it. was the channel. Yeah, yeah, You could say that. Okay. So that relationship continued to yeah. intensify. Um, over the next two years quite dramatically and I began to uh, I began to attend bhajans or, you know, and, and most Westerners call it kirtan, we call it bhajans. And that became the real process for me was this uh, bhajan and uh, devotion to Baba. Why don't you and,
0: explain what bhajans uh, are <laughs> for those who may not know?
1: Bhajan is uh, mostly Hindi or Sanskrit or certain other Indian languages. Which are sung uh, devotional prayers. Uh, so mm-hmm. a leader sings a line, and the, the, the group repeats that line. Mm-hmm. It's a form of um, it's a form of prayer, really. Had you given uh, up your
0: meditation practice at this no, point? No, I then still uh,
1: I still kept the practice. The mantra changed, and eventually left altogether. Mm-hmm. Within a few years, the mantra changed. Uh, kind of, it just kind of happened naturally. I didn't have much intention around it. Okay. But the practice of sitting continued. I've always loved sitting in the quiet. And I still do. Mm-hmm. Um, purpose is a little different now. So the the intensity of love for Baba continued, and then he began mm-hmm. to appear to me in the form of Shirdi Sai Baba. Mm-hmm. He would come to me in meditation, uh, any and all, at all times, at night and sleep and so on. And, 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 he, and
0: that was a Sai Baba who had lived a hundred years ago or something. Right. Right. right yeah. yeah. He
1: was he. He was contemporary of Sri Ramakrishna, mm-hmm. and um, I can say more about that maybe. But anyhow, Sri Baba began to appear to me, and sometimes would would give instruction or teaching. And one night, I think it was in I think it was Guru Purnima, 1992, <coughs> Baba came um, as what we can say, sagun Brahman or or Brahman with the form and with attributes, and taught me what. At the time, I, I didn't understand what he was teaching me, but in, in retrospect, I see that he was teaching me pure Advaita. Um, Shirdi Sai Baba did right, this. Right, right. And he gave me these instructions. Three, three. He gave me three terse sentences, expressions, which I, I would say were Mahavakyas, but they were in English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, in that same night... Can you well, tell us what they were? Uh, the line, the three, three of those were, I am the motivator of... Let's see. I'm the motivator of every act. I am the doer of all deeds. I am the enjoyer of the fruit of all acts. Hmm. And a fourth one came later, but I, I, I don't want to talk about that here. Okay. But those four Mahavakyas became my practice from that point on. But anyhow, that same night, Baba came back in the... Uh, and the second time when he came, he was uh, nirgun Brahman, or Abyad Abyad. Brahman, or the presence with no form. Mm-hmm. And what happened in that occasion was Alan merged into that. Alan yeah. became that, and there was no more... Nothing but that mm. perfection, ultimate perfection. Mm. And um, so, th- somehow, this form came back. The the, <laughs> the Allen reality returned. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a few days for me to kind of adjust to that, but that. Uh, that was the knowledge I'd been seeking. Mm. That was what I was after, and uh, then that practice and that devotional thing continued. And um,
0: when the Allen came back after a few days, did you feel that the that that which you had been seeking was lost to any extent, or was it more of an integration so that both could, so that that could become a living reality?
1: I'm, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand the question.
0: Well, in other words, sometimes people have a profound merging like that, you know, uh, into universality or unboundedness or whatever. But th- then, when they kind of start getting back into the nitty-gritty of their life, they lose that. Oh, yeah, and you
1: could say you could say it was lost, in, in in the in the context of what you're saying, was lost. Okay. But the certainty, the ground of being, wasn't lost. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what? The, the kind of next step that unfolded was. And uh, my devotion for Sai Baba intensified. It, it, it kept getting more intense. I would think that it can't get any more intense, but it did. It kept ramping up and up Which
0: and up. Sai Baba are you talking about here?
1: Well, they're all the same to me, but Sai, right. Baba, Sai Baba, the Bharti Sai Baba. And uh, around his birthday time, I, I went into uh, an, an enormous devotional kind of explosion um, in my relationship with him. And merged into him not as that pure kind of limitless Brahman presence, but in, but in um, in a form of pure love. Um, he came to me in a vision or meditation. This might have been in '93. I don't remember the exact year, but he came to me in a in uh, in form, and it was a, it was, a it was a process that went on for probably two or three hours. I don't want to explain the whole thing here, but I I've written about it and. In my autobiography, if I ever get that together, as a book. But at at the culmination of that, there was just, Sai Baba and myself, and um, we would touch each other. There was form, there was name, there was appearances, and the love intensified between us until everything dissolved except divine, pure ocean nectar of pure divine love. And around that time, um, uh, the individuality of Alan collapsed. It just—it was just gone, and I couldn't relate from that standpoint anymore. The—the—the um, the, the point of reference for my relating to the world and life around me was that. I, I am the source of all life, I am, I am pure existence. I could relate to myself from the standpoint of, I am light, I am energy, I am fire. That was it. Um, it, it, was a, it was a difficult time for the people around me because I had no sense of, these are my children, these are not my children, this is my home, this is not my home. Hmm. I, I remember at one point I had to sign a check to pay sales tax, and I, the the idea of signing a name was just totally revolting to me. I, I was like, Name form, what does that mean? It didn't mean anything to me,
0: so you were back in the states at this point,
1: yeah, yeah, I was at home at that time and and I was actually working i working wasn't a problem I was in a i i became i entered a state of intense ecstasy
2: mm-hmm.
1: constant ecstasy unimaginable ecstasy and uh, so long as I was alone there was nothing but divine ecstasy. It was just overwhelming.
0: What sort of uh, job were you working at?
1: Oh, I have a lawn mowing service. So I was mowing lawns in the meantime. Uh, so that's nice and uh, simple. You can just yeah. sort of <laughs> push a lawnmower. Yeah, yeah, right. It didn't it didn't require uh but some of the things I did looking back on were just crazy and I you know, had, like the, had the mind been I could roll down a set of concrete steps and have no injury whatsoever. Everything to me was humorous and fun, Um, but I was in constant ecstasy. The only thing was when I encountered other people, I felt their presence so deeply and I felt their pain and would be overwhelmed with their pain. I I remember walking across someone's lawn and got this pain in my shoulder and I looked up and there was a broken limb in the tree. Mm. I felt everything so intensely. Um, and I, I didn't sleep. I, I had no interest in food. And then I reached a point where I realized I kind of I kinda of had enough sense that this could not go on. It was so intense it was burning out my body.
0: So you said that you weren't uh like sleeping and you weren't eating. Do you mean literally no sleep, no food, and that's why your body was gonna I drop <clears throat> in away? Well week?
1: I, I, I never went unconscious. I would lay down for maybe two hours a night, the rest of the night I would sip. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, a little bit I would eat. I could not normal food. I could not eat it if uh-huh. it had been used in a puja or offered in some something. Then I could eat it. It was enjoyable. But I had no taste for food. Everything was like cardboard. But yeah, you're just, doing a
0: fairly high energy job mowing lawns. That was taking a lot of energy. Yeah, there was
1: no plenty of energy was there. Too much energy. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. but, but, you but you said I, your
0: your body was going to drop in a week. The rate you were going. Well, so it's it just
1: the energy was so intense. The body couldn't tolerate it. I, there was an awareness. That the body couldn't tolerate it much longer, and then there. So the question then became: um, a number of questions came forward. One was: Would would the body continue? Would this life form continue? That became a question, um, and then there there became a question: Would there be an ego in the body? Would there not be an ego? Would it be dropped? Um, and then there there was a specific moment, or probably a couple of specific moments when. I, I I said, well, okay, either way, it's fine, but not a decision that... There was no person here to make that decision, there was no individuality. So there was an awareness of a decision, but then there was a leaving of that decision to God, to the Mother. I, I sometimes just say the Mother. Sometimes I say Baba, sometimes I say Swami, sometimes I say whatever. But I knew that life made the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, I have to cut the, this part. could Could be tedious to talk about, um, but how that decision was made and the process that went through, there was a a child who came. Anyhow, that decision got made, and the and the uh, ecstasy diminished. The personal life came back, and uh, a child was, came. Are you, are yeah. <laughs> literally you, you literally a small child uh i was working one day and, and uh, i met this little girl she was maybe 4 or 5 years old mm-hmm. and um she sort of pulled me back pulled me back into hmm. the human context
0: it was that little girl who asked if she could help and and she said she didn't need it, any any money it, or any
1: no no it was just uh I met this small child. I was working, and we began to play with her toys and pretend, you know, her little pretend world. At that time, I could relate really well with children. I couldn't relate with adults <laughs> at all, but children, I could play with them. I was like one of them. I, I was very much like a child. and um, So I had this, this connection with her, and uh, I, that's when the awareness took on the decision that I had to come back into this domain and, and live in this domain. So then for about the next 12, 10 to 12 years, practices would come, investigation become, what is this, uh, you know, how to clarify, how to understand, how to conceptualize what was going on. Uh, and yeah, you know, I read all the books, uh, Nisargadatta, uh, Ramana Maharshi, did some of those practices until the practices become completely redundant. And I began to develop an understanding of how individual uh, individuality develops, what it means, what its a re- what is the relationship of that to being, to the vaster being, um, and then and there were several kind of awakenings or culminations in the knowledge. There was a point where, I in meditation, I would I would I would experience or see not with physical eyes, but I would see all of creation coming out of. Out of being, everything would appear, everything would arise like entire gods humans animals, planets, everything would just arise out of being and that reached a culmination somewhere around two thousand two thousand one it I was sitting once and that when creation arose the voice a voice came and it said, "This is myself, and it was my voice, not the voice uh not the voice that's kind of inside our head as a mind, but there's a voice that it consumed everything. This is myself. Um, I was pretty dysfunctional for a period after that. The next part of the journey, uh, there's a lot of other things I, I I'm, I'm, I'm glossing over. But mm-hmm. Next part of the journey, know um, in a way, I, I was like Forest, the Forrest Gump of spirituality. I it was very innocent in so many ways and it just would just be absorbed by uh, devotion for God and these forms of God. Um, You know, I I developed a very intimate, close relationship with another another avatar in India, Narayani Amma. She's not very well known in the West, but I met her when she was barely out of her teens. Anyhow, what happened after this um, kind of Peak of yogic awakening. I mm-hmm. uh, had this death, came calling. Uh, I had several near death experiences, um, not classical near death experiences, but came very close to physically dying several times. But this one with the lung infection, um, I, I, I had, you know, I, at that time I was spending a lot of time in meditations, four or five, six hours a day. I was in solitude. My children were grown. My wife was deceased, and uh, so I went into the surgery, which was mandatory. It's the only, apparently, the only way of of uh, surviving this disease. Did you pick it up in and India? Uh, do you think the disease? Uh, no, no. It's a long story. When okay. you know, it Has has to do with a um, kind of a defect in my esophagus and lung infections. Okay. So anyhow, uh, during the surgery, I was unconscious, and I had this experience where I'm, I'm, I enter a, this big hall, um, and there I'm there, and there's mm, some other people or beings, and they're looking through books or whatever that's explaining my life. And they they're kind of well, okay, this guy's good to go. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to go back. And I'm thinking, oh well, wow, this is cool. And uh, then suddenly, something appears in the distance. And um, this 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 being this uh, form comes forward, slowly comes forward, and turns out it was Shiva. Hmm. But he was the ugliest, most ascetic form. I've never seen any picture of Shiva <laughs> that portrayed <laughs> him like this—hair and dirt and filth and ashes all over his body, and matted. Just uh, it was really, really ugly. But Still was Shiva, and the, that pure, b- infinite being was shining through somehow. I, I, it, I know it doesn't sound logical. Anyhow, so he comes forward, and he, everybody's he's, by this time he has everybody's attention, and he just makes this little motion, ever so slight motion, and we all understood what he meant. Send the dude back. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, that, um, you know, I... I <laughs> I keep unraveling the meaning of that, which many, many other similar you know, visions of Shiva, visions of Krishna, visions of Ram, uh, some in dream meditation, some in real life. Um, keep unraveling the meaning and the significance. But I believe that was the point when uh, I was set on the course of real embodiment. Um, it's as though Shiva said, okay, you've found me in the transcendent, you've found me in infinite love, you found me, but can you find me here? Mm-hmm. Can you find me where, the, the, in the most painful, difficult places of, your, of humanity, uh, can you find me here? Then um, <clears throat> came back into my, uh, you know, kind of left the meditation stage, um, came back uh, living and working in New Jersey, and at that time, also, I'd had a, I'd fallen and broken my back. I had a serious back injury, and I uh, was marginally functional, carrying on everyday duties. Um, I managed to go see Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, some of these pieces are really strange, but I, I went to see Eckert Tolle, and to make a long story short, couldn't contact him personally. There were too many people there, but I wanted some contact with him. So later, he came, in the. I don't know, the inner dimension, and uh, we had this connection, and he took me somewhere. At that time, also, even though I was in all this trouble, cities were beginning to come into me. Um, And uh, In this interaction with Eckhart Tolle and the other dimension, there was a decision that was made. A kind of decision was worked out. He took me and introduced me to some other beings, some other people, and I had no idea who it was until much later. fast forward another. What kind of cities
0: were beginning to come into you?
1: I, you know, I could just feel they were arising. Mm -hmm. I I could sense they were arising. Um, You know, I I could, I could be aware of people at a distance and knew what was going on with them. I I would enter states where, I literally could hear the prayers of everybody. I, I I would know what people were praying, what their heart's desire was. And I would sometimes find myself um, in another dimension assisting people between lives, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And you had
0: had that kind of stuff earlier in your life because you were saying, you know, you you had a stage where you could see people's past lives and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, these kind of things would happen off and on. Um,
0: It's interesting because, I mean, some people listen to all this and, you know, some people prefer a very plain vanilla, simple, direct... Form of spirituality, and um, you know, with with a few very basic principles that they just kind of adhere to and repeat over and over again. And um, they listen to this kind of stuff and they think, "Whoa, what a lot of (laughs) frills, complications! You know, (laughs) all all this icing on the cake. You know, can't we just kind of keep it basic?" But yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I think it's a matter of preference and a matter of proclivity. But um, when you get right down to it, you know, the universe is a fascinating, mysterious place, and and yeah. there is indeed all kinds of, there are all sorts of levels of reality, and. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and you know, like they say, each of us is just like the tip of the iceberg, and, and yeah, it might it might yeah. seem yeah. imagination that Eckhart Tolle came to you yeah. and took you on some little cosmic tour, but you yeah. know it's very possible, and my way of seeing things that you know on th- that some deeper aspect of the reality of of that man actually did that and interacted with with your deeper reality and, and had experience.
1: That, yeah, well, I, that it I, wasn't I, just I, an imagination uh, or uh, something, yeah, you know. I I could could say more about that in some sense. Is it imagination or is it real? I I don't know if you can ever separate real from imagination. I don't think you can totally separate false from from true. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're completely separable. Um, anyhow, um, so a series of events continued, and um, something else happened with Yogananda. Quite an amazing, amazing experience with Yogananda and what I call the inner dimension. And I was given um um a kind of <laughs> oh, shall we say, introductory or initiation into what's called Bodhisattva. 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 Mhm. Um, b- by by Yogananda.
0: Okay. You gonna operate um, on that a little bit?
1: Uh a, l- just briefly, he appeared to me um See, I had an experience of uh, Yogi Satyam. I don't know if you've ever heard of Yogi Satyam. Yogi Satyam, uh, I had heard rumors Yogi Satyam is a reincarnation of Yogananda, and I had this amazing, intense love for Yogananda. So I thought, well, let me go meet him. I went to Canada and met him. And when he walked into the room, clearly to me it was Yogananda. Hmm. Um, and then afterwards, there was this probably two or three hour, maybe longer, cosmic interaction with me and Yogananda, and um, yeah, it, it's as though, I mean, to try to convert what happened into linear concept and language, he, he sort of placed this garland around my neck and proclaimed that I was um, a bodhisattva, and I was like, okay, whatever this means, I don't <laughs> know, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it was an honor and, uh, and a privilege, but... Um,
0: what does it mean? I mean, I've heard uh, the term, I, but I, what I, you know, I'm
1: still—it's still—I'm still figuring it out. But okay. I was given—I I don't want to go into details with this, but I, around that time, I, all through my life, I would kind of hear this cosmic voice, and about this time, I was given a sort of cosmic mission uh, to do with the cosmic mind. Um, I don't know if we'll have time to go into that or not. Not necessary, but okay. the next phase then comes okay. along. I uh, was invited to an introduction to Waking Down Mutuality by Ted Strauss and his wife Hillary. And and, uh, I went because it was, well, first of all, it was about a mile from my house, maybe two miles, and some friends were there I hadn't seen in a long time. I was not seeking anything, I didn't want anything. Um, But just, okay, I don't watch TV, I don't have anything else to do, let me go. And so Ted talked for a while, and he talked about some of the principles of waking down. And when Hillary shared, I could feel her so deeply, I could feel her heart and her, the, this the great love, you know, was moving. Uh, and so I started to sh- take some interest in it, and I was driving one day, I remember exactly the time I was driving, and I suddenly realized these were the people, Samuel and Ted and some of the other teachers were the people that Eckert totally had introduced me to. Huh. Now if you go ask Eckert about this, he would probably know nothing about it, so right. yeah, chalk it up to imagination if you like. <laughs> this is just my story. Um, then I became involved with waking down, and after nine months or so, that process, the the recognition called second birth, transpired. And when that second birth transpired for me, um, I literally saw—not with a physical eye, but I, I some deep inner sense of things, consciousness fall. You just there's this regal flow of consciousness, kind of from here. Mm-hmm. Right into the heart center on the right side of the chest. So is it's that how you like would
0: define your second birth? Was that that? Well, flow in the
1: in the inner in the inner dimension of it, yeah. Wow. The outer dimension was a little different.
0: Because I mean, you've yeah. been through so many awakenings and and yeah. <laughs> profound things. It's like you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it almost would seem like second birth was kind of elementary compared to a lot you've been through. But you're saying it was an. Yeah,
1: I know, I know. It just it. But to me, it was just the next step. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was. There was a phase into embodiment hmm. because prior to that, you know what you know what's termed witness consciousness was there in me It wasn't a big deal, but right i uh, for so many years, I was always conscious like if you saw me sleeping in a room and you had a conversation, I would probably remember that conversation the next day, right because you' were um, conscious during sleep yeah, and I, yeah. I in fact, if I were lying down, I wouldn't know if I was sleeping or not unless. Thoughts came. If the thoughts came, and they were sort of logical, then I would say, "Oh, I'm awake." If they were like jumbled up dream, dream images, then I would, "Oh, okay, the body's sleeping." So
0: yeah, that but awareness I mean, continued. You well, a you team? know, it does seem like you would be a candidate for something which would get you more embodied, because it <laughs> seems it seems like for years you'd been on. You know, just on the doorstep of death, you know, because you were so Uh, kind of detached from your body, you know, ready to check out at any time.
1: Yeah, That's true. And even in the midst of that, I still had certain personal problems or dark sides that I couldn't justify. So when Waking Down came, I knew this was for me, somehow I knew it, and um, I also realized it became very clear to me that I needed help in order to make that transition into embodiment. that It, it, it was a t- just difficult, fairly difficult process. So anyhow, about that time, the second birth period, uh, some other things happened that broadened the, the maturity here, broadened the uh, understanding of, of mm, what human, nature, God, and life is all about. Um, incidentally, uh, that so Baba came in my dream at that time. And uh, he made a statement like something like this. I mean, this isn't in language, but he made a statement something like this. So you finished the yoga at Bob, And I said, Swami, you know more than I do. Then he made this quick motion. He sh- actually shook hands with me. He wouldn't allow me to do pad namaskar. So he kind of shook hands with me and he made this motion. We have work to do. Let's get busy here. And he goes off with me in a huff. So, the other thing that happened then, which uh, finishing the yoga bhav means, well, (laughs) you know, it's an ongoing discovery for me what it means. I just, I think he just, he was acknowledging that the what we seek to achieve through yogic practices, Mm -hmm. that seeking was no longer there there. What does the word bhav or bhava mean to you? Bhav, bhav, b-a-v. Play? It's like a uh, feeling, but more than just feeling. There's a Sanskrit, Like a mood. Uh, f- yeah, yeah, a deep, yeah, but a deep mood. In Sanskrit, there's a phrase, yad bhava tad bhavati. We translate it in English means, as you feel, so is it. Uh-huh. But it's, a, it's, it's not a feeling you can change at will. Right. As you feel, so is it. Hmm. Yeah, like that. Yad-bavati. Okay. So anyhow. Um The other thing that happened then was that w- w- the soul itself revealed itself within me, huh You know, I could say I saw the soul as mumbo jumbo, but there was an experience direct experience of the soul itself um, and um and what was that? okay.
0: I mean you, you say these things they're like like little teasers but you gotta actually explain uh, what the experience uh, was. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well see the problem is that when I try to explain it I I I, I, I can get lost in that and um,
0: and words are so inadequate too. Oh god, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: But um, you know, and then I, I, I came out of that and I'm like I, I I do this search on webs and books. Does anybody else experience a soul? And I, I find these kind of Know, trivial statements like the soul is in your body and the soul migrates from birth to birth and it, it just didn't pan out with my experience of soul. You know. Soul, my experience showed me, and I'm going to say it's for me, I'm assuming it's for everybody else, but who knows, I, I, don't, I try not to extrapolate my experience beyond my experience. To me, soul is, it's neither pure transcendent uh, like the witnessing consciousness piece. Neither is it form, but it contains both of those and it has, let's say, an element of individuality, but uh, from the standpoint of soul, individuality is, is, uh, is a dot. Um, is it what? It's like a dot. A dot. It's a small, small thing. Right. An important, an important thing, but not. It doesn't con- It doesn't convey what the soul is like. Could, it, that, could you an say analogy. that it's
0: sort of like the uh, kind of a, a an interface between universality and individuality, sort of a seed, yeah. f- a seed yeah. form of you individuality. You
1: could say that. Can say that. Yeah. But, um What I came, what i what I understand about it now. Is that the soul? I I would I I draw one analogy. And analogies are never the whole picture. It's just one little piece. An analogy to me to me would be like uh, the the electricity in your house compared to the generator. So you have a generator that has to be outside the house. You don't want the generator inside the house because the generator (laughs) is massive and generates a great deal of power. What you want in the house is you want the effect of the generator. You want the electricity in your wall. Mm -hmm. So the soul is the generator that's outside the house. And this, from the this soul, soul does not enter the body, the soul force projects the body, the force of the soul. The way electric, The generator doesn't come in your house, the, the effect of the generator comes in your house, hmm. and the effect of the generator is electricity, it's power, it's energy, and it, it, it turns on your lights, it turns on your air conditioner, it, it turns on your heat. Uh, it does everything in your house, because so that's how it functions to so the body. But if the is, generator
0: were in your house, it would probably blow out all your circuits.
1: Well, first of all, you know you wouldn't want to live in a generator. And yeah, right. like that, if you brought the soul yep. into the body, the body couldn't sustain it. In its yeah. full force, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, would, it, would, it, would, it would be like 220, not even 220, but those high-voltage wires that run. Yeah, 11,000 so volts uh, you or know, whatever. If you plugged your house into that, what would happen? And fry it. I try every flower. Try everything. Um, so from in my, it's my understanding the, from the experience is that from the soul, forms forms get generated, and the soul back back into the soul. But that that center of the soul energy is on the right side of the chest, and that's where con- consciousness through the soul force connects into this.
0: I think Ramana Maharshi said yeah. something along those lines. Yeah,
1: something like that. He talked about, but uh-huh. he I never Found anybody who talks about the soul? Hmm. Um, maybe one. I found one book that talked about the soul, but some of the things that you were saying were too academic for my experience. Hmm. But so here's what I began to understand: is that from the soul projects form, Indivi- and so you have you have individual forms, and you have many other functions of the soul, and uh, and through that I began to understand why, when I was a teenager, I could look at my arm and see stars and planets, because another function that comes from this soul has to do with how stars and planets interact. Uh, Another function that comes from the soul that sometimes bleeds through into this mind is um, working in what I call the death room, where people transition from lifetimes and all that. So,
0: so hang on a second, so you're saying that um, when you say this soul, you mean your particular soul, one of its functions is the formation of stars and planets and working in the death room, is that yeah, what you're they're, saying?
1: They're, they're, they're very different functions. So I think that everybody has, from the soul, these things happen.
0: And so you're saying that different souls have different, different roles, different, um, different yeah. jobs, and your particular soul has the jobs that you just mentioned?
1: There's a couple of functions that it, that they, sometimes it bleeds through into this conscious mind. It's very mysterious. Mm-hmm. But what happened after after waking down in the beginning of the embodiment process, is that the actual soul function seemed to change a little bit. So that embodiment actually has an empowerment that's more than just on the surface. It, it runs really deep. That's what I want. That's what I want to say. That's my experience. Mm. There's an there's an empowerment that runs really deep and enables soul force to... Hmm. It's, it all sounds so linear and logical, but it's not. It's just beyond all that. But there is an empowerment that seems to transpire into the soul force itself. Um,
0: I'm trying to grasp what you're saying. So you're saying that the, no, I
1: think we're, I mean,
0: I know that all we can do is, is hope to, oh, all we can hope to do is have tastes of it, you know, and that those oh. tastes can give people a sort of a, a little springboard for an intuitive sense of what you're saying. But um, I think what you're saying here is that, actually, maybe I should have you reiter- re- reiterate it one more time because you'll do that better than my rehashing of it. Uh, but it sounds like an important point, so I think it would be worth hitting one more time. Which part? Well, just the embodiment. I, I, get, I sense that you're saying that the embodiment um, somehow is enabling the, the innate purpose or function of your soul to um, do its thing more effectively in the world. Is, is that what you're saying? Or did something, I totally miss some, it?
1: Well, something like that. I think Kay. there's an empowerment Mm-hmm. From embodiment, there's an empowerment from embodiment that has has it has its, uh, feeds into the soul, and therefore into the other functions of the soul force. The soul the soul itself is vast and, and rich and complex. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so uh, so we might say perhaps and t- tell me if I'm getting closer that um, without embodiment, the soul or 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 it can be it's it's much more sort of um, Transcendental, or detached, or, or far removed from the nitty-gritty of life, but with embodiment, more of the full force of the soul uh, can be brought to bear in your life. It's sort of like your generator analogy. I mean, you know, without embodiment, the generator's outside a house, and some of the power from it is trickling into the house and powering things. But somehow, with embodiment, the house is upgraded to be able to um, utilize much more of the capacity of the generator.
1: Well, th- the only thing is, I don't know if it has that much to do with individuality. Okay. I think I think it has more to do with um, something bigger, a uh-huh. bigger context of our lives. We tend to, we tend to be quite focused on me and mine, right, uh, from the standpoint of the personality and the and the mind, uh, our individuality. But the soul force is more interested in its. More intent on a much bigger picture. Okay. Um.
0: But how does the soul force um, express itself other
1: than through individuality? Oh, God, there's so many, so many possibilities. Okay, there's well, like your particular... Are
0: you talking of soul force as an individual consideration? Like I have my soul force and you have your soul force and everybody has theirs? Or are you talking of soul force here in a more universal uh, context?
1: Well, uh, both of those really.
0: Okay. Um, All right. So carry on. Uh, we'll get to. The
1: okay. Yeah. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, and and much of it's just extrapolation from a brief experience, a few mm-hmm. brief experiences, trying to organize it into an understanding. Right. So certain certain parts of wisdom. We just organize them into tidbits. You
0: know? Yeah, yeah.
1: There's a bit of defilement that goes on there. Yeah, we're just but grasping I, I gu- at straws. I guess what, what what I'm excited about it is that no matter how high we fly spiritually, embodiment still has something really beautiful to contribute.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and I know I don't want to discredit anyone else. Um, some people have an awakening experience, and there's no more. Individuality. There's no more person there. Mm-hmm. I really honor that, but I also want to give voice to and value to having someone be home, having a person there. Yeah. To me, to me, it's like um, it's a, it's like an ocean, and um, what what we refer to as ego and mind are like fish in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So you got a a whale in the ocean. You know the ocean's a pretty big place. There could be thousands of whales in the ocean. It doesn't really harm the ocean, as far as I can tell. Whales don't do any damage to the ocean. So whether or not there's an ego here, um, an individuality, being, the vastness of being, it's not disturbed by that. It's just, it's like, uh, it's like ice ice cubes in a glass of water on a hot sunny day. How day is Nothing like ice cubes in your glass of water.
0: And both so the that, water and the ice cubes are the same stuff.
1: Absolutely, same stuff. So that's all clear to me. That, and and, I, and due to, you know, the education that came here, I began to see how individuality arises, how you know, what we call ego arises, um, and I and I, I had a, a kind of wisdom or a depth of acceptance around that came. I think some thing. of the
0: people you were referring to a minute ago, who you know say, "Well, there is no individuality, there is no ego, uh, there's no person here," they they would tend to say that if there is a person, if there is an individuality, then you haven't quite got it yet. You know, there's.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I don't argue with anyone. I mean, that's their that's their wisdom. Beautiful. It's profound. Mm-hmm. It's great. To me, it's like, uh, let's, let's say, say you have, have a, a paint. Do you have a painting in your house? There. Do you have sure. something look at? What yeah. You uh, see? Well, you right get? now I'm looking
0: at an actual a photograph of the Grand Canyon, it's up on okay, our well wall let's here.
1: Let's say that that's um, let's say there's a um, a hawk, mm-hmm. a hawk in there, and let's say it's painted, you know, a, um, maybe it's a Rembrandt. Okay. <laughs> or, uh, uh, whoever a great artist has has created that rendition of the Grand Canyon with a hawk, and you mm-hmm. can see his feathers, and you can see his beak, and you can even catch his eyes, you know. Now you uh, okay? Um, you can look at that and say, "Oh, it's just paper and paint. It's nothing. It's just a piece of paper with some paint on it. There's mm-hmm. no hawk there. There's no Grand Canyon there. Is that true or not?"
0: Yeah. Yes it's and no. True. <laughs> it's
1: true. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely true. There's no Grand Canyon there. There's no hawk there. Right. So when you look at this person, any person, you can say, "Oh, it's just play of. It's just the play of consciousness. It's just." Mm-hmm. The, the, the canvas here is Shiva consciousness. There's a canvas here, a blank sheet right. of, of infinite white paper, Shiva consciousness. And you can say, oh, that's tha-
0: all that's real, or that's all that's significant.
1: And on that canvas, Shakti, the ink, Shakti is the ink, creates an Allen and a Rick and history and people and and all that. And we can say, oh, it's just it's nothing but paint and canvas, mm-hmm. there's nothing real there. But how does, how does the Creator feel about that? Mm. How does the, the great Shakti, the mother, who's, who's, who's putting the images on the canvas, doesn't... <laughs> you know, I, I looked at the history of Waking Down Mutual and here's what I began to discover. Um, the yogis came from India. Mahesh Yogi, some other. You know, I, I don't want to go into that whole story. You're pretty familiar with it. And what did we get with TM? We got mantras. And look at those mantras. They're all the names of of Devi. I'm, you know, I don't want to talk about the mantras, but mm-hmm. you know what your mantra you were given, and you go into the history of it. It's the name of Devi. Mm-hmm. It's the name of the mother. So we go on worshiping, in a sense, or praising, or whatever, um, these names of Devi. And then, kind of historically, what happens is, you have the, uh, the onset of uh, Narayanayama, Amaji, um, Sri Ma, You've got these um, human living forms of the Devi come onto the stage. And um, I've had a lot of experiences, a lot of involvement with all of those forms. Mm-hmm. Oh God, wow. so many. Wow, so many great experiences. Mm-hmm. Then, to me, historically, the next step is embodiment, which is a kind of investigation of the details of baby's ornaments. Humans to me, beings, life forms are the ornaments on Devi. I could talk more about that in my experience. But when I was in making that transition more from transcendent to embodiment, I would literally see, not with these eyes, but I would, I would constantly see Devi creating everything. Um, I'd go into a kind of ecstatic trance or whatever. But I would see Devi, the the Divine Mother, creating everything. She's simultaneously making concrete hard and and flowers soft and children beautiful and and snakes uh, doing their thing. And um, I would see her just doing everything simultaneously. And I'd be absorbed just in this ecstatic love of her. So now, to me, embodiment is like, okay, let's investigate the details of her creation. Mm-hmm. So the Alan that's here, the person that's here, the ego that's here, I don't know if there's an ego here or not. It, it, to me, it's like, doesn't really matter. I'm, a, I'm aware of the one creator, the one create uh, matrix um, creating everything. So if, she, if there's an ego here, she's creating that. If there's no ego here, then she's just not bothering to put an ego here at the time. Mm. I, I, it doesn't matter to me. What really matters to me is, what can I give back? Mm. Um, whether it's an ego giving it back or... In the in the final ground to be, and it's only herself giving back. So it, it's I'm I'm kind of indifferent to that whole discussion. And I, you know, I I, I, I watch some of your recordings and interviews with uh, people who in whom apparently there is no person. I enjoy those, and I enjoy the ones with the person too. <laughs> I, don't, I don't you know I I don't need to correct anybody. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm you I'm kind it? of
0: uh, mellowing out on that topic myself. It's sort of like I realize that these the different ways of expressing it and experiencing it are just part of the the, the variety of the garden yeah. of life, and that uh, and yeah, that it's appropriate yeah. for different people to have these different orientations. And it's yeah. it's sort of silly to to say, well, this one's right and this one's wrong, yeah. or this one's more complete than the other. They all have their place. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, and. I think one of the things that's really profound is just the dawning of, of so much wisdom, so many people awakening into their, the uniqueness of their wisdom. And I also want to say that I think awakening, awakening is a, it's a moment-to-moment, day-to-day process. It's fully organic, fully alive. It's not and there are transitions that have happened here. You could say that's an awakening. That's an awakening. But there's a constant, um, constant arising of everything. Constant arising of um, life and the mystery. And an ongoing exploration of what that means. I think the mystery. It's, it's the nature of the mystery to always be one step ahead hmm. and wherever we arrive uh, in our exploration and awakening the mystery immediately embraces that and then moves on into a, a, a deeper exploration hmm. so not for me then the embodiment part um, is here you know I was I was We were going to Manhattan. I was doing a sitting in Manhattan recently, and on the way we stopped and picked up a quick bite of food. And the the gal serving the food, I I just looked at her, and she had a body like mine, very slender. And immediately I realized something. I have a very slim body. I could not gain weight no matter what I did. (laughs) I can't gain weight. I've tried. And yet, I could not teach someone how to lose weight. I am a master at being thin, but I can't teach it. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could teach someone to be thin, but I'm a master at it.
0: Just your natural makeup.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just there naturally, mm-hmm. but I'm a master at it. It's no discipline for me to control my eating habits at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what we're given to teach is, I think, what we're learning, what we need to learn. So you know, become designated as a teacher in Waking Down Mutuality, and it <laughs> I think it's because that's the part I need to learn, is embodiment. What does embodiment mean? What does that really mean to um, fully live with the awareness of the um, transcendent wisdom, but to live everyday life?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and a lot of that entails... Mm, the arising and meeting of what we can call shadow or difficult parts of our lives. Um, the places, I think many of us who, who, who journeyed into the transcendent search and long meditation and all that, were driven by an attempt to escape um, what it feels like to be human, mm-hmm. what it feels like to be trapped in these bodies. Just as when I was a child I took a vow to get out of this place, no matter what it took, I I think that's indicative of how we all kind of live in the spiritual quest. Maybe not all. Let's say a large portion. I don't know about all. But being human is is, and to the extent, especially that we have a, an intuition or a memory of our of, of our spiritual nature. We're driven to get to that, as a means to escape this. And reintegrating or relearning this human part and uh, bringing it on board, so to speak, I think has a lot to do with the transition that we're going through as a a, a planet, as a species. And I, I, you know, from my viewpoint, Waking Down Mutuality is one of the great tools of how how to educate the human being into a more sustainable version of life. We can call it the coming of the new age, or maybe it's the satyuga, I don't know about all that. But this is what I sense about it. You see, I, you know, let me tell one story to, to help clarify what I'm talking about. I was in Mexico, oh, when was that? Maybe 2002 I was in Mexico and my daughter was married to a Mexican. And we were visiting her, her in-laws. And they had a little compound there, and they they had these birds, I think they were called pachichis, and looked like a little duck. So they had captured these wild birds, and they lived in the compound. And I asked them how did they get to those wild birds to stay there. So what happened, they caught one of them and clipped his wings so he couldn't fly. And other ones came and joined. So all these pachichis were living in captivity. And I, I meditate on that. Why would these birds give up their freedom to live in captivity? And it occurred to me that they they came there because they loved their own, they wanted to be with their own species, and I realized out of that that all beings intuit, we all have an intuition that we're something great. There's something great about us, something profound, in um, since we are that we we intuit that we are the infinite being, and the birds don't have individuality. They don't have. Um, like we do a conceptual. See, I I I speak about something not ego, but I speak about something I call a conceptual paradigm of identity. That way, I'm I, I'm trying to be more descriptive of what I mean than ego, because who knows what ego means? You could give I have a thousand definitions. The birds don't have a conceptual paradigm of identity. They have an identity with species. They want to be with their own species. It means they love themselves. It means they intuit there's something great about themselves. So we, as humans, have that same haunting intuition, but it's captivated by our conceptual paradigm of identity. I'm white, I'm Christian, I'm Caucasian, I'm vegetarian, whatever identity has come. See, when a child is born, he doesn't come out saying, I'm Hindu, or I'm Muslim, or I'm Christian. He doesn't even say, I'm uh, black, or white, or, or... None of that's there. That's all learned conceptual paradigm of identity. So our sense of our infinitude is caught in that and so we keep on trying to validate that infinite intuition in the context of individuality so we become overly competitive we want to we want to prove it by becoming great uh musicians or great athletes or very wealthy um so what happens post second birth or post any kind of awakening i think and i can only i'll talk about our our awakening second birth awakening is our life is no longer about trying to discover or validate our sense of our infinity within the conceptual paradigm of identity. So the life itself becomes more of a, um, a quest for service to all beings. Because we know that anytime we serve anyone, we're serving ourselves. When we know that anytime we contribute to anyone, we're contributing to ourselves. Whereas so long as one is lost in the conceptual paradigm of identity, it's all about how can I improve my conceptual paradigm here? How can I be bigger or better or stronger? Which um, has to do with another topic I call the, um, the otherness. There's this film, there's this barrier of otherness that kind of governs the, governs the life of a person pre-awakening. Once that threshold of awakening is is broached, the otherness—it's like a membrane. Oh, there's this other being. There's this other person. How do we negotiate that membrane? And pre-awakening, the membrane it creates enormous fear and, and enormous reactivity and protection. And so the human race has kind of lived on the momentum of how to. How to interact with that membrane of otherness, how to behave, how to relate, how to connect, and and, and much of the animalistic behavior, which is uh, primarily mate with it or kill it. There's like two really primal things. So all that is is bleeding into how humans behave, and it's much more complex than that and then we've kind of evolved this primitive understanding of God as the ultimate alpha male. We either have to please Him, uh, find our way into His, his domain, and, and behave properly to stay in His ul- ultimate alpha male protection. And so all these pieces are, are kind of feeding into the momentum of human behavior. So what Waking Down to Mutuality brings to that momentum and the kind of guiding and governing of that the flow of momentum to a more awakened enlightened living human living being is that we as individuals become the laboratory for that experiment we give ourselves to it so and that doesn't work by splitting off the personality the whole personhood the paradigm of identity the ego and the mind Splitting that off and say, "Oh, I'm not that. That has nothing to do with me." That is absolutely true. At the depth, the whole personal realm has nothing to do with my essence. You see, I'm wearing a blue shirt, for example. And you say, "Okay, I've got a blue shirt on. Where does the shirt exist?" You asking me? Well, anybody. <laughs> where does the shirt exist? Shirt exists in the, in the realm of concept and functionality. Mm-hmm this color, is kind of a, I don't know, navy blue or something, that color does not feel the touch of shirt. Color doesn't know anything about shirt. So my transcendent awakeness does not feel the touch of my personality.
2: Hmm.
1: Just the way the color on the shirt isn't affected by buttons and which part of my body is covered Color, blue color has nothing to do with it. It's not, it doesn't feel it. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. So if my sense of myself, my sense of subjectivity, in the case of the shirt, is only about the color, then I don't care about the shirt. shirt has nothing to do. So if my sense of subjectivity, my sense of myself, can be completely embedded in the transcendent quality that doesn't feel the touch of the personality, great, fine. But what we're about is bringing that realization alongside, well, let's get the, the you know let's have a color here. let's also have the shirt here, and let's see how can we optimize this shirt. But this work of embodiment is only done, I shouldn't say it's only done. It's done in our school by being all of it in simultaneity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Accepting and uh, sensing, very clearly sensing our infinite, transcendent, untouched nature, unborn, undying nature, and also kind of equally balancing that with our humanness, with all of its, you know, its it's anger, all these things, anger, greed, lust, envy, fear, they're all there. But when we live, we become like the living laboratory for the transcendent to find itself there like that image I had of Shiva being this, this horrible-looking ascetic. It's as though that great transcendent wants to investigate, not that it wants to investigate, but there's a certain kind of curiosity that it just says, oh, God, what's going on there? What is that, what is that, that horrible part that I tried so hard to avoid? What's it really like? So when I first went after the, the second birth, I would get w- these waves of being lost in, the, in the, some of the horrible places that I'd hated so much in my life. But what would happen is somehow they would, they would slowly and tediously become integrated. This is what I mean by the laboratory that we become for life. Um, you know, all the Indian sages, including the Hashogi, talk about when we... Attain something spiritually. There's a that that brings forward our generations of our lineage, generations of our family. So there are pieces of my behavior and my thinking and my fears and my angers and blah 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 that are kind of in my lineage. Um, and so we begin to tease apart what are the what are the real meanings of, of karma? What are the real mm. meanings of these behaviors?
0: Yeah, Christ said something about the sins of the fathers are you know, inherited by the, yeah. the Son yeah. or some such it's thing.
1: something about sour grapes and the children's, parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on the edge. <clears throat> so
0: I, I want to interject a question here, which is, do you feel that people can get stuck, and do you, as you look around, do you see people kind of getting stuck in this kind of transcendent perspective um, without... Um, without entering into the embodiment stage. That's the first part of the question. And the second part is, you know, how, how, does your, how does waking down actually get people
1: more embodied? Can people get stuck? You know, I had this friend who has, um, has a, had a boy, and, and this boy would have these incredible experiences. And uh, one time he gave his father this, I think he said it went on for 45 minutes. The, the boy had, well, he was about seven years old. And he gave us, this 45-minute lecture on all the different um, stages of awakening, and many people who, who would have what we call moksha, but they would just kind of be stuck in a kind of almost like a limbo zone. It could go on for many, many years, like you know, thousands of years. They're just kind of stuck in this, in this place. Um, I don't know. The whole thing is so complex mm. and so rich. And, uh, you know, even if you try to define the word awakening or enlightenment uh, stages, you know, God, you'll have a thousand different explanations, a thousand different versions. I think in spirituality, first of all, it, it's more profound and it's more pro- powerful. To stay with the question. Mm-hmm. Like In the question, there's, there's openness, there's aliveness, there's power. And the question is like, oh, okay, it's dead. <laughs> it's done, you know? Questions are kind of, answers are not the answer. That's yeah. one of them that's one of my little quotes so. i
0: guess uh you know there's some people i mean you know from a waking down perspective it's a it's an evolutionary stage you know beyond just you know transcendent realization whereas some people feel like it's uh you know from their perspective they feel like it's more of a you know a cop out or a, a, a an indulgence in uh, or, or or a re um, you know reinforcement of in you know that which typifies ignorance, and uh, you know yeah, that it's right. therefore you know not an evolutionary stage, quite the opposite
1: well I you know my my take on it is, yeah, they're absolutely right, we're absolutely right and they're absolutely right. Uh-huh. So for me, there's no conflict right I, I just I just see I just, I, to me it's just it's just the mother. It's just the mother doing what she's doing. Um, She is completely capricious and she's completely organized at the same time. Mm. It's beyond the human mind to figure it out, but we cannot not try. We cannot keep trying to figure it out and understand it. So it's in the game, it's in the contest of trying to figure it out that, that we evolve. So whoever's taking that position, whoever's taking this position, beautiful. You know, I, you know, we talked about Baba, and I'm realizing a lot of you have a lot of viewers who have an hatred and antagonism and bitterness toward Baba by whatever reasons. Well, it's not like that's they that they have that's a that's hatred;
0: it's just that there's some pretty substantial evidence that he did some stuff that is not, yeah. con- you know, yeah. considered very kosher by our yeah. cultural standards and perhaps even his.
1: Yeah. See, to me. Sai is, Baba is the living form of the totality. Mm-hmm. He is the living presence of that which uh, which gives life to everything. So, sure, He's also there for those who need to relate, or are driven to relate, or compelled to relate, for whatever reason, whether it's karma or desire, I don't know. But a way to relate to life through these kind of feelings and senses. It's it, it's not, it, it, and I'm talking about him as a sideline because it, that's life. That's that's life. Life. Can, I went through a, a, some work with Santo Dimi, and uh, after awakening, and I began to understand how. What is that? The, Santo Dimi is a form of ayahuasca. Oh okay. Um, what happened for me? It would it took me into. It's like my life became flipped inside out and all the inside our life is it's compact and it's it's, it's a there's so much packed in there and, and so compact that we really can't sense it all so what happened for me with the daimyo is like the whole thing just became inside out and the minutia could be revealed of what compels this person to do this, what, what, what how the individuality is constructed. And I began to realize that the, the source of all of life is, um, it's like an explosion, it's like a, a, a volcanic explosion power that is enormous, beyond enormous. That the creation of a solar system, creation of a galaxy, is a minutiae that arises in the, in the enormity of the source itself, and there's nothing within the within the uh, s- essential substance of the source. There's nothing that compels it to be good or pretty or ornate. Or, it's just poof. In fact, one of the one of the um, Points in my journey, which was about three and a half years ago, I uh, I was sleeping one night, and while sleeping, um, I don't know what to say. A deeper part of myself sat up and began to meditate, and when that deeper part sat up to meditate immediately. It's beginning from the point of, you could say, be, it's it's beginning from Nirvakapa samadhi. It's not going there, but it's uh, it's just beginning from there. And um, <clears throat> from that point, the uh, a deep, profound sense of awareness that sits in my depth. Um, Try to put words on that. Um, Journeyed, so to speak, into the Godhead. what's there is so profound and so enormous so vast even these, these words are just oof, they tarnish the experience in a way because it's something that's just un- totally unspeakable mm. but my sense is that, that's, that's our source. The soul comes out of the Godhead. S- in some unexplainable, mysterious manner, the soul comes out. And s- the soul has a, a kind of mysterious fear of its immortality. There's no words but to try to point at something the soul has a kind of fear of its immortality which is the dawning of love. Um, And so from the soul come forms. Form of a human, form of an animal. All kinds of forms come out. Explorations into the attainment of a point of perspective. And so the human form seems to be a, a great, great opportunity to form perspective. So, and when I had that experience, when that, and even to say I had an experience, is kind of crazy talking. When that phase of realization arose, I, I wrote a line that's called a fish found swimming in the volcano. And to move into the presence of um, the Divine, it, it would be like swimming in a volcano. Hmm. Everything is dissolved. Huh. And so, living in this human form, with all the threats and all the uncertainties, the greatest uncertainty is the Godhead. It's, <laughs> it's completely uncertain. There's no form. There's no definition, and it's even entering a field the, of all possibilities. Oh, definitely, <laughs> and all possibilities. So there's nothing to. There's nothing within its essence to contrive that what comes out should look a certain way or should be good. So it's I just
0: I, ev- I, everything. So I guess you started on this whole theme just now for the last five ten minutes, as a, a an explanation of the sort of the. Um, you know the, the paradox of someone like Sai Baba, or yeah. I, I'm not sure if paradox is. Wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And you know and there have been others. I mean Samuel's teacher Adi Da. Um, you know yeah. it's, it's a crazy wisdom thing. It's um, I have a little bit of a hard time not being judgmental. You know when you when you begin to look into some of the things that it, you know he actually did. Um, but you know I can I can take my judgments with a grain of salt, <laughs> and you know admit that. I don't necessarily have the ultimate big picture, but but, uh, you know. uh, On the other hand, there's a a caution, perhaps, that you know the crazy wisdom theme can be used as justification for anything by anybody.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you know, know, it
0: gets a little bit. um, You you sometimes you have to sort of establish some kind of moral uh, boundaries.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: Sure. Well,
1: I you know. I don't think there's much value in going into that. Right. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, but I'm not. I don't mean it, to introduce as, that as a as, tangent, but it did seem to be the underlying, the the springboard which got you going for the last ten minutes on this, this, this whole explanation of how unpredictable and, and um, you know all possibilities the Godhead is.
1: Yeah, I had a I had a a vision once, a um, dream vision. And um, I entered this place where Baba was a teacher. And um, he was... uh, What I would see is that everybody has a project that they're working on. And Baba would be behind them to one side, and he's guiding them in their project. And it came to this one character who's uh, sort of a relative of mine. This guy hates Baba so much, he would come into my house, he couldn't stand to look at Swami's pictures. He just intensely hated Baba. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at what's going on, this guy had a project. His project was to prove all the bad things about Baba. Right. Who was behind him helping him? Baba was there. Baba was standing there helping this guy prove that Sai Baba is a fraud, that Sai Baba is evil, all these things, Baba was helping him. Baba is that his, his consciousness is merged into that infinite presence. So, if somebody is finding out all bad things about Baba, how is he doing it? Through his, through his, his exploration. There's a power behind that exploration. There's something behind the intelligence that's guiding, that force that's guiding the discovery and the exploration. That force is, to me, in my in my experience, that is Sai Baba. So, it, if someone has the experience or the exploration, there's a force that's guiding it. Hmm. See, well, there are me, a number of hard. characters
0: in the you know in the Vedic literature who hated Krishna with a vengeance, and they're the ones who got yeah. lightened most quickly, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because of the yeah, intensity seriously. of their focus on him.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, Shishupal. Shishupal hated Krishna, and he hated Krishna intensely. You know, what was it, Rukmini? Or, when, or then there was Shishupal.
0: Ravana with Rama, same thing.
1: Ravana. When Ravana came down, before Ravana came down to be the enemy of Sri Ram, he was, uh, the legend goes, he was the uh, gatekeeper for Vishnu. For right. And when he was said, oh, okay, you want to go down and participate in this, this event, Ravana said, yeah, I'll go down if you insist. But he said, "I want to be Ram's enemy."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, "I want to be his worst enemy because if I go down as his devotee, I'll think about him once in a while and I'll say prayers to him. But if I go down as his enemy, I'll think about nothing but him." <laughs> yeah. God, there's so many. There's so many layers and layers within the, within this 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 realm and this expression. So much beauty and so much depth and so much to explore. Mm. Yeah, Shishupal hated Krishna more than anything. And when Shishupal, Shishupal first offended Krishna, Krishna um, started to avenge his, his threat. And Shishupal's mother prayed, oh, Krishna, this is my son. Don't harm my son. Please don't harm my son. I know he's a little rowdy here, but he's my son. You have to protect him. Krishna said, okay, I'm a, I'll forgive him 1,000 times. I will give him 1,000 times he can, he, can, he can do me wrong. After 1,000, it's over. And that day when Krishna was being uh, praised in court, all the people were there and they were praising Krishna. And Shishupal ga- jumped up and he couldn't take it anymore. He hated Krishna. So Krishna had stolen Shishupal's wife
2: hmm.
1: on the marriage on the day of their marriage. That night, Sh- <laughs> Krishna came and took his wife. So Shishupal hmm. had plenty of cause to hate Krishna. And uh, so when Krishna Krishna was there in the in the court and Shishupal through some little bit of anger and denounced Krishna, they were serving food and um, they had a, these silver trays. And Krishna took one of the trays and t- chopped off, threw it, cut off uh, Shishapal's head. Uh-huh. And a few rishis were there. I don't know, two or three rishis were there, who, who could, who had the spiritual sight, and they saw Shishapala when the when the blood ran out. Shishapal's spirit entered Krishna's feet, and they reached Krishna. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It is it's, it's so mysterious and it's so vast. Of course, a lot of these
0: stories may be metaphorical, but they are nonetheless very instructive. And they, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. the the a lot of those Vedic stories are like that. They're so paradoxical and they stretch you. You know, they stretch yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. They stretch you out so that you can't really lock into a, a, a you know polarized perspective. You have to sort yeah. of you keep swinging back and forth between these extremes. And yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah exactly. There's this story, you know, when the when the uh, Kardavas were all were all dead, and the Pandavas finally died, when the Pandavas went to heaven, the Kardavas were already there. Right, they were sitting there waiting on them. So.
0: Yeah, and Yudhishthira said, "What are, you know? What are these guys doing here? I want to be with my brothers." And they said, "Well, you got to go to hell." <laughs> so, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, He was the uh, he was the Dharma Raj. He was the king of righteousness, but he yeah, had to go down that. to hell because when that uh, when they killed that uh, what was his name? The, Geto- one he, yeah, the one, he the one the warrior, he told a white lie
0: about the elephant.
1: Yeah, the one warrior nobody was, could kill. And Krishna said, "Oh, well, kill the elephant who had right. the same name." And, and, yeah.
0: yeah, and then he announced that Katokicha was dead, but it wasn't. But and everyone thought that he referred to the guy, but he was actually referring to the elephant. So it was like this white lie that enabled him to.
1: Yeah, and he even said the, he said but the elephant, but he said it in a whisper. Yeah, he's
0: the like Getotkicha, the elephant yeah. is dead. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So uh, getting back to you um the uh you know ha- have you brought us up to the present i mean have we we've gone through this chronology of your of your spiritual unfoldment and uh if you if we have brought you up to the present, then you know what's on your horizon
1: um well in some sense I have no idea what's coming next um about a year and a half ago yeah about a year and a half ago uh i had uh, let me back up just a little bit more. This this vision of the source of godhood um, came, and at about the same time, I became aware of the um, shall we say the termination the termination date of this this form. Uh-huh. I know how much more time is left here. You do. Yeah. You're pretty sure about that. Uh, things are always subject to change. Right you want Terminate. to tell us, or is it a secret? No, 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 I don't <laughs> talk about that. A <laughs> uh, Buy a life insurance teacher. policy on you or something? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, what arose out of that, it, it's kind of like the vision of of, of um, the Godhead and a kind of clarification of how much time is here. helped me to relax into some more... Shadowy parts of the personhood. Um, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, if they put you in prison, you want to at least know when you're going to get out of the prison. Yeah. So I, I felt like it was uh, like the mother, of the universe said, "Okay, son, you're going to go deeper into the shadows, but here's the final date. Mm-hmm. You know, this is when. So you know, will the body actually perish at that time? No. So far it seems to be the case. Anyhow, there's also an awareness of the next birth that's developing here. Mm-hmm. Um, which I presume you don't want to talk about either. Well, I don't have much of sense of it yet. Okay. Um, there's some sense of it. Some sense of who the mother will be, that kind of thing mm-hmm. is there. Interesting. Um, I think I think this is partly so that th- that the consciousness could relax more deeply into the embodied part. It's like a deeper stage of embodiment, and my partner Gina has really been instrumental in that, um, kind of deepening into the personality, the part that we <laughs> think uh, spirituality is all about overcoming.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the deeper relaxing into that, and out of my uh, so. About a year and a half ago, um, well, I had become a mentor in the Waking Down Mutuality School, probably six, seven years ago. About a year and a half ago, a group formed in South Jersey, and they wanted to get together and have meetings, and they asked me to come down and um, just sit with them as an official mentor in the work. (coughs) And uh, slowly it became obvious there that um, a more teacher role was, Coming forward, um, and then about uh, about that same time period, somewhere around uh, the winter time, um, some mysterious being or presence came to me. Um, I can't say it was a. It wasn't like a person, but it was a presence. Uh, had a being had a had a, a being like a, not an individuality, but a being presence came <coughs> in the, into, my, into my awareness. And uh, I kind of turned to this presence like, well, who are you? What's this all about? And the presence said, I'm the supervisor of spiritual teachers. And then gave me some instructions. for whom? For the planet? For the for (laughs) for New Jersey? I wasn't. (laughs) I I didn't have the liberty of asking questions. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The president's pretty much made it clear. You don't ask questions here, son. You just following. You you just listen. Yeah. So, uh, um, I suppose. uh, I mean, those are just some of the things that that happened, so that the teacher role came forward. I see. And. Um, if you ask me, what do I have to teach, i am like, I really don't know anything to teach. I, I, don't, I don't know what I would teach if I were going to teach. But what, there seems to be a, a capacity here to, to, as I listen to people, and my role is a lot more about listening and receiving people than it is about teaching or giving something. Mm-hmm. But as I listen and feel and meet people, there seems to be a capacity to, to notice, where the person is skipping over something that's usually difficult, hmm. and what need what I sense is necessary for the forward movement of awakening is simply relaxing into that feeling, into hmm. that place,
0: into the things that are that are, they're skipping. You mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, what I notice is people tend to gloss over it, and I kind of feel it. In my body, it's like a feeling in my body when they're glossing over something
0: it seems like you've had that yeah. tendency all along I mean you know back in your youth you yeah, were you were seeing pe- so tuning into people's past lives, and also this has been a theme you know with you
1: well this is a little different though. okay, yeah.
0: but something yeah. along the same lines in a way you're able to really tune in mm-hmm. on people
1: sometimes yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to say I can do it I, I I would say it happens it happens yeah. it's it's a it it's an aptitude yeah it, you yeah, know, by God's grace. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really all about grace. Um, sure. And let me let me just give another kind of my viewpoint or my context for this thing. Back in the '90s, when I was in that kind of ecstatic awakening, what I I I, I remember once uh, my mother-in-law, who was this little Italian lady, almost 90 years old, and she asked somebody to pick up some cereal, I mean, it was Cheerios or cornflakes, whatever she wanted, and they brought the wrong box of cereal. Hmm. It wasn't Cheerios, it was cornflakes or whatever. And she just became totally upset, <laughs> <laughs> the wrong cereal. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, here is, here is, uh, here is God, here is infinite being, totally upset over cornflakes. <laughs> and. Uh, As I digested that over a period of time, in my sense of who we are, I realized how to be a human takes enormous concentration. Hmm. It's like you're you're compacting the sun itself into a little clay container. Yep. Takes enormous concentration. Squeezing
0: the ocean into a drop.
1: Yeah. And so most schools of awakening, and, and I'm not making a statement, I'm just giving a pointer about what waking down and mutual, how it works. So most schools of awakening are about developing further concentration in that concentration, becoming concentrated on a mantra, becoming concentrated on um, an exploration. So what, what, how waking down and mutuality works is we have a capacity to relax out of that concentration it's the relaxation that enables the forwarding and, and enables the next step forward it's just relaxing into how it is right here and now and so in a sense it it does lower the bar of awakening it makes awakening more available mm-hmm. it makes it a more um, treadable process mm. and um this awakening is an awakening, in my in my interpretation experience, it's an awakening from which we make a real contribution to all of life. It's not about splitting off from life, it's not about denying life, but it's about inviting the infinite into life, just how it is, right here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it comes as a... A kind of culmination of um, spiritual seeking, or some kind of intention, has been there. Whether we call it spiritual seeking or not,
0: for you, you mean it's a culmination.
1: I think in general, yeah.
0: For anyone who participates, it tends to be. Is that what you're saying? So
1: yeah. Huh. Uh, You know, and uh, and again, for me, it's not. It's it's it comes down to what can I contribute. It's not like I've achieved enlightenment and I want to enlighten someone else. Nothing like that. It's more like in my process, in my journey, the, the anxiety, the, the, the kind of suffering that was there in the early years and the way I was helped and you know, nurtured and guided and loved by so many... If I gave you a list of the... Mahatmas and and avatars I've been with. (laughs) It's a long, long resume. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, okay, can I give something back? Can I offer something back? Yeah. Not not out of having achieved something great, but just out of a sense of, there's a sense of just profound fulfillment here. Sense of just deep, profound well-being. Not at the expense of the human self, but right with the human self, which is very paradoxical. Mm-hmm. Waking down to mutuality is is very much about holding and containing paradox, hmm. and being, and just that that pressure, and it's an ongoing pressure. It's an ongoing experience. It's it's organic and alive.
0: I think it's kind of natural to maybe this doesn't really touch the profundity of what you're saying, but it's kind of natural to, to want to give something back. You know, it's like a little kid comes home from school first day, and his little sister says, you know, what did you learn? He said, well, I learned A, and I learned B, and I yeah. learned C, and, mm-hmm. and and let me teach them to you, okay, A, B, C. Yeah. And and she said, well, what more? And he said, well, I'll tell you tomorrow. He Go, ne- <laughs> <laughs> goes to school, and next yeah, day yeah. he learns, you know, D, E, F. Um, so... Yeah. It's it's kind of an, an innate tendency I think we all have and, and you know, we're all sort of input output machines. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah. a- absorbing uh, and just, and and sharing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that that's a good you know, it relates to what I was saying earlier about something that I've completely mastered I can't teach. If I've completely mastered something I couldn't teach it. Yeah. And it's the, the teacher good. always
0: learns more than the student, you know, so it's actually yeah, the process of teaching is a learning process.
1: Yeah, a teacher has to be a student. I mm-hmm. think I don't want to make that an absolute. I'm sure there's some teachers. But, who but
0: it's see. a tendency. It's the way it tends to be. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's, it's what I'm it's what I'm finding for myself right now, uh, for sure. I can only teach what I'm learning, what I'm exploring. And so many times in in the sittings, people will be having a process, and I'm just there with them in their investigation, and the discovery comes, and it's as, it's as fresh to me maybe in some ways more profound to me than it is to them but it's just as fresh to me it's not mm-hmm. like oh i know this and i'm going to teach you but it's just like okay i'm here with you now let's investigate and there's a discovery that comes something opens up and it might and i i do there is a um a kind of cosmic feel for things that's here um, i don't want to say i have it it's just here there's a cosmic feel for things hmm. so what i what i feel uh, that feeling, it's like when the, when, the, when the people come to the sittings and the shift comes for them, that that relaxation into their profound understanding, a deeper layer of their understanding, the next step for them, when that step comes, I, I feel like this um, vibration through the whole human being. You know, like like, okay, <clears throat> this guy, Osama bin Laden, was recently terminated. And, and they showed on the news, they were showing uh, some guy out in, I don't know, Kentucky or somewhere, he armed himself with an AK-47. He was going to go over and take out bin Laden. He trained himself and all that. So, okay, one of our people goes over and kills one of those people. What happens? Oh, some of those people have to come back and kill some of these people. On and on it goes. That's the field of karma. So what happens when in these sittings, um, a a person who has this commitment, this willingness to live an embodied awakening, when a person comes into that and there's a relaxation out of the tension between spirit and matter, and there's a relaxation that kind of um, balances, something opens up. That vibration is felt through all of humanity hmm. on a subtle level, so there's no retaliation, none. There can't be any retaliation because it's a, it's it's a coming into balance. So by doing this so-called inner work, it becomes it becomes an offering to all humanity. Mm-hmm. And this is what I see as our contribution. Our, you know, in the, in the Krishna analogy, we have our little stick out, having to hold up the mountain. We're just offering ourselves. We're offering our lives. We're offering it what we are. Okay, Mother, what's the next step for us? What's
0: Do you feel that in your case there may? I mean, you've been through so many things over the years. You know, I mean, drugs and TM and Sai Baba. And, you know, yeah. and the, and all these. I'm skipping. You know, hundred hundred different things that you've been through. Um, do you? Feel Feel like five years from now, it might—presuming you're still alive—it might be possible that you know waking down stage that you'll talk about in retrospect. Or do, does this have a sense of more of a finality to it?
1: I—I I feel like at this point in my life, I'm primarily oh, yeah. in a—I'm reluctant to use the word teaching, but we have to use some word here. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm in a teaching phase. Yeah. And um, I, it's it's very simple to me. I, I'm really a pretty simple person on the on the, you know, in the mundane world. I'm a very simple person. Waking down the mutual is the best tool I know of right now. Mm-hmm. If tomorrow I find a better tool, I'll go with that. Sure. It's not that I'm committed to waking down dharma. In fact, the the waking down dharma is periphery to me. Yeah. What's really important to me. Is who comes into my orbit? Who shows up? And how? How can I serve? Yeah. How can I love? Mm-hmm. More deeply, more profoundly. Yeah. Not just as a. Not just as, from the standpoint of having realized spirit or whatever. But how can I just here and now? And if the guy, if, if uh, you know, it doesn't have to be anything complex. Um. Somebody comes to my front door and wants a cup of water. I give them a cup of water. That's yeah. it. huh? Somebody comes to my door and they want to find the next step of awakening. I, I give my guts, I give my heart. Yeah
0: it's interesting and I, and, I I,
1: and, I, and, I, and I don't in the most altruistic sense, I don't have a preference. cup of water, God realization.
0: Hmm.
1: What's the preference? Whatever on? is needed? Well, yeah. Yeah. What, What? you know, what chance do I have to give back? Mm.
0: Um,
1: so to me, waking down the mutuality is not a... the Dharma is important, but that's not the most important part. The okay. most important part is what's in the hearts of the people who, who come here. Uh, and again, many people come here to teach this. Some people come to learn from this. Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, I, I'm a perpetual student, and, and to me, awakening is a perpetual exploration definitely yeah, yeah. not a destination right and i
0: mean and, and waking down is like a tool, it's a tool I mean, you know, we started this interview, I was using skype five point one and then I was having problems, and I upgraded to skype five point two and I was having more problems, and I downgraded to skype four point two you know, and it's not you know. It's not about s- using Skype here. It's about having a conversation with you, and Skype yeah, is yeah, Skype right, is right, Skype right. is the medium. And so, you know, you're saying waking down is a is a convenient or uh, f- uh, uh, an effective tool for you.
1: And I and I don't want to I don't want to to uh, kind of tarnish the value of the, the Dharma and the teaching. What Samuel Bonder has put together it's quite quite amazing how he's put this together. Mm-hmm. And the other you know people who present the dharma like krishna and cc C. lee uh ted strauss they're the ones who write the dharma you know record it and document it and mm-hmm. God, you know my hat's off to them they they, they just do amazing incredible work they're very mm-hmm. very important and the most important part is the lives of people who come into the world yeah how how can we how can we be a presence that enables them to find their next step Hmm. That's r- that's the bottom line. Now, can, can we serve in such a way, can we present this in such a way that whoever comes, finds their next step? Hey, and if, if, if somebody comes here, and their next step is the, away from the human part into some transcendent realization of no-self, God bless them, that's hmm. what I'm here for, that's their next step, I do my best to serve them in that direction. Mm-hmm. I don't have a I don't have a demand what their next step is.
0: Right, it's not for you to say.
1: Yeah, I'm just there, and can I help? Can I give them a little? Can I get a little hand holding? Mm -hmm. And how they find their next step? Sometimes I need (coughs) hand holding myself, still. Yeah, yeah.
0: A number of times during this interview, you've you've said something which has brought you almost to tears, and you know it's evoked the feeling. And you know, I have friends who say that they can barely go to a movie because their hearts are so melted that that, yeah. that they'll you know make fools of themselves, sobbing in the movie theater. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, has this um, always been your nature, or have you kind of gotten this way more as a result of
1: you know? I think more. I think it's worse now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I definitely can. I you know, I can definitely relate with Ramana. You know the the the. Um, what do you call them? The guys that in, in in India, there's a group of people who enact the plays. Uh-huh. I can't uh, can't think of their names, but they they put on the particular costume and they act out some of the plays from like the life, Krishna <laughs> Leela
0: or you know, yeah the, yeah, the Leelas.
1: I've actually seen a couple of them. They're really mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, but these guys would come to Ramana sometime and they would act these things out, and Ramana would if he tried to tell a story from one of their lives, he couldn't do it. Huh. He would it would break up. He would just he, at some point he was just he was just lost in tears of bliss. He couldn't continue talking. Huh. And he would say, I don't know how in the world these guys can do that. <laughs> Papaji, Papaji was this was very similar. Papaji said, you know, if I could teach devotion I would teach devotion, but it can't be taught, so i, t- I teach what we call Advaita. Mm. Interesting. Uh, yeah.
0: I've heard the same in the Sagadatta that, you know, h- yeah. he taught Advaita but um, he he had a very strong uh, bhakti side to him.
1: Yeah, he, he said he said uh, the people who think they know come to my talks. The people who really know come to the bhajan.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tim Tim Conway mentioned that too.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah that's beautiful. Huh. Yeah. Good. Well. Um, yeah. If I could if I could sing, I probably would just spend my time singing bhajan and leaving kirtan, But I, uh, I can't sing. I can't sing at all. Yeah relegated to, to this role, and you know, even Shankara,
0: we're speaking of, of devotion here. Yeah, uh, yeah. He yeah. was, you know, you generally thought of the father of Advaita, but um, yeah. he, he was he quoted as having said, uh, "The intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion," and yeah. he was a great devotee. I mean, he wrote all these be- oh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful yeah. sort of devotional songs yeah. And, yeah, and verse.
1: Yeah, and that, the Bhagavatam came towards the end of his life, when it was yeah. all about the yeah. He saw that, and he saw that intellectual guy studying grammar. You know, there's an interesting thing with Chankra. I, kind of, I kind of like to look at uh, the whole history of spirituality, and you know, I just get like a thumbnail look at it. You see, uh, Adi Shankracharya came at a time when Brahmanism was falling in India. If you kind of look at this whole thing historically, the, the Western civilization came out of... Um, came from where? Socrates and Plato. That was the origin of Western civilization as we know it. I think that uh, I think there was an avatar there. Anyhow, so they had a student named Aristotle. Aristotle. Aristotle had a student named Alexander. And so Alexander was the first great world conqueror. And about and uh, in that in that time, Brahmanism in, in India, Brahmanism was just. Small kingdoms all over the country, and each had their own sect and their own religion, their own way of worshiping. <coughs> and deep in that, deep in that uh, array of Brahmanism, was hidden Advaita uh, Vedanta, but nobody understood it. It was beyond anyone's understanding. Hmm. But because of the conquering the conquering skills that had developed through Alexander, Brahmanism was falling, because it was very easy to come in and, and conquer each of these little kingdoms one at a time. And one of the great kings, I can't think of his name, I'm not that good with history, but this great king saw what was happening... Ashoka? I think it was Ashoka. Yeah. He began to organize the country into a, 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 a single religion. Mm-hmm. Now that single religion was didn't really grasp um Adlata. and so um, a, a woman i can't think of her name had a dream one night and Shiva appeared in her dream and said Mama, am i'm coming in your womb i'm going to take birth in your lineage and that was adi shankacharya mm-hmm. shankacharya's mission was to actually i think he,
0: she, the, the, as i recall the story she was said she was told well you can have many sons who will live long lives but will be sort of mediocre guys, or you can have one great son who will live a short <laughs> life. And <laughs> oh, she, yeah. she said, "I'll go for the great son."
1: <laughs> okay, that's a little different version than I heard, but right. it kind of kind of comes down to the same thing. So Adi Shankaracharya um, set the stage for the um, so we say the survival of, of Vedanta. Vedanta means knowledge. Idanta means the end of knowledge, which is a way to the realization of complete oneness, complete non-duality. Now, something interesting happened in Shankara's life. During the debate, I don't remember, you may remember the details more than I do, but there was this argument, well, how would you know about, the kind of argument towards him was, how would you know about this, because you're a monk, you've never lived a, a, a normal Know, the, the way we live as householders and all that, and he said, "Okay, well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll test the waters here." So he went out and he found some, I think, Prince or somebody who was about to die, right? And he took that guy's body and then he lived the life of householders, you know, women and all that. And he came back and he said, "Well, I can argue now because I've had this experience. Here's my take on it." And you know, he. Everybody can argue with me who wants to. I don't mind. That was the origin of waking down the mutuality. Huh. Yeah. I- interesting. Y'all yeah, know, here's why I say that. If Adi Shankaracharya, if Advaita were perfectly true, why did he do that? Yeah. Completely unnecessary if Advaita were in itself completely, absolutely, perfectly the truth. Nothing else is needed. We wouldn't have needed to take that journey into another man's body and experience the human, you know, the more <coughs> the non-monk side of things. Yeah. Okay, now, if you look at Advaita, and really look at it, if somebody is completely Advaita, they won't say anything. How could they speak? Right. Okay, you, 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 you say, well, speaking happens, I mean, I know Papaji sometimes said, well, the silence spoke. <clears throat> but isn't that duality? Yeah, you have to make it with duality to there's speak. A, there's a, yeah, so there's a even if you give a little bit of space for duality, <clears throat> that opens the door for embodiment. Hmm. That's just my version. You know, I don't, I, I don't need any believers or converts about it. But That's it's a, an interesting things thought. Things I never, never thought of it that way. The, the, the things that I see and that I like to, I, you know, they, they give me a thrill as I kind of. Grasp the whole unraveling of life and the journey on the, the adventure, the
0: yeah, cool, well, I think we've set some kind of record here in terms of the length of this particular interview <laughs> that's that's fine um I don't mind you know i, I like the long ones, and some people say they like that too, you know they they say that boy they it's really nice hearing you an interview where there's no sort of time limit because you can just really relax and and get into it um mm-hmm. Do you f- do you feel like there's anything of of you know that's really important to you that you haven't had a chance to say?
1: Well, I I you know the the thing that I hope would come across in my conversation. Not so much what I know. I really I'm not a very intelligent person. I I don't really know much, but I love a lot. I hope. Yeah. I. Uh, well, I would hope that comes through. It right does now. come
0: through very much, at least as far as I can see. I mm-hmm. mean, you're I you're an, you are an intelligent person, and you have a bro- a broad range of experience, and you're very articulate and all. But your your heart is very much in evidence as well.
1: And I, I just one thing I I like to say about spiritual practice. I know sometimes that question comes up. To me, the uh, the great spiritual practice is gratitude. Hmm. It's, it's a spiritual practice that any, <laughs> any beginner, the simplest beginner in spirituality can pick up is gratitude. Mm-hmm. Find something to be grateful for, write down something to be grateful for, just start to practice gratitude. And no matter how, I would say, advanced one is, there should be gratitude. Hmm. And at any stage of the game, it's a, it's a gratitude to me is the one thing that's both a practice, a practicable, thing and the, the nature of realizations. So, huh. <coughs> For example, witnessing as a, the witnessing element, the sense of no individuality, that can be a stage on the way, but it's not really a good practice.
0: Gratitude it's is... It's not a, a practice state. at all, is it? It's, it's more like a state.
1: I wouldn't recommend it, you know. I don't recommend it as a practice. Yeah, I'm not
0: sure if it's something you can do. It's something you either, you know, live or yeah. don't live.
1: Right, it either happens or doesn't. Right, but right. What I'm what I'm saying is so many spiritual practices that are designed about around trying to replicate the quality of enlightenment. Yeah. <coughs> don't work. Yeah, exactly. But I this, mean, this a, a description
0: th- is taken as a prescription and, and you know, uh, one attempts to mimic or <coughs> uh, mimic the, the quality yeah. of the enlightened state.
1: Yeah, but gratitude is something that is both practicable mm-hmm. and the nature of. To me, awakening. I like to think of awakening in this way. It should the earmark of awakening should be an inner state of gratitude. There should be an inner state of gratitude. Mm-hmm. You may not call it gratitude, but essentially it'll be like that. It just be a, like a, an, a, an, a a living exuberance, a living. Sense of the 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 enormity and the vastness, the mystery of life. So, Mm. inner state of gratitude, the expression, the outward movement of that. I would say, is is benevolence, Mm. kindness. To me, these really define awakening, more broadly and at the same time more succinctly, than anything else I've come up with.
0: I think those are great criteria. You know, I mean, you can. Talk about all sorts of subjective states that a person might be experiencing, but if if those qualities are not there, then you know, you, you question what the what the value of it is. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's an, a point that my wife often brings up. You know, she says I don't really care about all these abstract subjective things. You know, that people say. Well, yeah. I, I, I want to see like how is it how is it actually you know manifesting in their lives.
1: Beautiful.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, I uh I think that the people of Somerset, New Jersey would be surprised if they knew who was really cutting their grass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so thanks, Alan. I think this has been great and uh, I'll probably end up splitting it up into a couple segments because I think YouTube might have a limit on how long video can be that you put up, but that's okay. Uh, this has been really enjoyable, and I, I think people will get a lot out of it. And um, if people want to be in touch with you, as usual, I will have uh, a link to your website on on BatGap.com, sure. and uh, you know they can get in touch and do whatever they they can do with you. Uh, especially if they're around, around the New Jersey area, they might be able to get together with you. Um, speaking to those who, uh, oh, and, and thanks to your friend, uh, what was his name, Robert, for
1: Robert, Robert Chiklini. Yeah,
0: for for setting this up. And speaking to those who are watching, since there are a variety of ways of watching, you might have stumbled across this on YouTube, um, or you know, been sent a, an audio file by somebody. If you go to batgap.com. Uh, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump, you will see all of the interviews I've done archived there. This is, I think, interview number 70. And uh, you can subscribe to an email newsletter to be notified of uh, new ones that are as they come out. So thanks, Alan. It's been great. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. I really appreciate what you do. I love your shows. Oh, Thank you. Have you listened to many of them?
1: When I get a chance, I you know. I, yeah. yeah, you I could know. do what
0: I do is you could get an iPod and listen to them
1: while you cut the grass. Yeah, not, I haven't reached that stage of civilization yet. I <laughs> I, in fact, I time. bought myself
0: an electric lawnmower recently because yeah. it's nice and quiet and I can listen to my headphones without you know having to blast the volume too high. Okay. <laughs> righty. Yeah. So thank you all. Thank you, Alan, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Namaste. Thank <laughs> you.